and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm Kelly Blahos, and I'm here with my friends and compatriots, Daniel Larson and Barbara Bolin, and we appreciate you joining us. It's spring, and we're well into President Biden's 100 days of office, so what better time to assess his foreign policy? We thought we'd do something fun for the next few minutes or so. Uh, that is a, a thumbs up and a thumbs down on Biden's moves in this arena so far. So we'll play emperors in the Coliseum and be very severe. No in-between, votes up and down. So I'm going to start with my thumbs up. I would like to give Biden a thumbs up on getting us out of Afghanistan. I was really surprised uh, that President Biden had come out so forcefully about getting the troops out of Afghanistan by September 11th. Yes, I was a bit disappointed that he didn't keep to the May 1 deadline under the Doha agreement, which would have had all of our troops out by now. But he did seem very uh, deliberate and committed to getting the troops out and all foreign forces out of Afghanistan as a way of ending this 20-year war. So I'd like to commend him for that, even though, you know, obviously we have to see what happens. And I'm a little concerned that the, the military will just shift its kinetic operations over the border and continue airstrikes and its drone war and counterterrorism just from another uh, a country. So we'll have to see how that all develops. So let's talk about that for a little bit. And I'll just throw in my thumbs down. I was very disappointed to see that he, President Biden, has given the green light to the $23 billion weapons package to the United Arab Emirates. Uh, which has been involved in the war in Yemen, causing all sorts of catastrophe there. In the beginning of that six-year war, it has used weapons to uh, fuse the proxy war in Libya, has repressed its own population, and was responsible, we know, for getting weapons, American-made weapons, in the hands of al-Qaeda in Yemen. So big thumbs down for that. So would you guys like to discuss either of those? Uh, sure. So the Afghanistan decision, I, I agree with you, Kelly, was an encouraging one. Um, it, it's not, it, it took too long for him to make it. I think if, they had, if he had come out right away after taking office and had committed to doing that, uh, he probably could have met the May 1st deadline. Uh, but, but it is important that he has set a, a definite deadline uh, by which time he's going to get the troops out because it's, it's so easy to commit vaguely to a withdrawal uh, and then backtrack on it. Uh, we, we saw that with the Syria withdrawal that never happened uh, under Trump, uh, where in principle, the president had decided to do something, but then th there was no definite time by which it had to happen. So the uh, those elements in the Pentagon and the White House that didn't want it to happen had time to, to delay it and prevent it. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that because Biden has set the, the September deadline, uh, that that won't happen in this case. I definitely agree with your thumbs up, Kelly. I think that that's a very positive um, decision by President Biden. It's one that the majority of the American public agree with. It's time for us to get out of Afghanistan. And I also share your concern that we may end up somehow still involved in 
military operations, there's now some reporting that we may be involved in some kind of counter operations against the Taliban in Afghanistan. I really hope that these reports end up not being true. Biden did seem to be very forceful in what he said and seemed to be very committed. I do think that his having a son that's a veteran that served in these wars, uh, these wars that don't ever seem to have an end, may help him to understand the concerns that military veterans have about our, you know, this has been an ongoing multi-billion dollar and almost 20 year long war. So hopefully we can really actually end this. And I think from what Biden said, it sounded like he really meant that. And I hope that that ends up being true and that he doesn't get slow walked or turned around by the Pentagon. Right. Exactly, which the Pentagon has been notorious for doing, slow walking some of these policies yeah. that they don't like. And that's why I get I, I get concerned that they'll just shift the military operations into a different arena so they'll get their way. They'll be able to continue what they're doing. It's just that technically they won't be inside of Afghanistan. So uh, very interested to see what happens there. How about this $23 billion arms package to the UAE. Right. Well, you know, we've talked about this before, and of course, I, I'm very, uh, I'm appalled by that one, uh, because when Biden announced an end to the support for Saudi coalition offensive operations, he also said he was going to halt relevant arms sales, uh, even though many of these weapons won't be delivered to the UAE until, uh, you know, for several more years. Uh, they, they, it does send a message to the Saudi coalition, if they continue to receive arms sales, uh, despite the fact that they've used their weapons to commit war crimes, uh, it, it encourages them to continue doing what they've been doing. And so it, it's, not, it's not the message that you need to send if you're trying to rein in the Saudi coalition. Uh, and, and certainly delivering war criminals the most advanced weapons that we have uh, is, is bad in and of itself, because we know somewhere down the road they're going to be using these things uh, to kill civilians somewhere else. And uh, so it's, it's a really, it's a shame. I think that overall on these weapons deals, the Biden administration has been extremely disappointing. They have not altered the policies of the Trump administration. And if anything, they really do seem to be in the pocket of the military industrial complex of 100% have been approving most of these deals. And there doesn't seem to be any change of policy there at all. And so I for, for my uh, thumbs up uh, today, uh, I wanted to commend uh, Biden on extending New START, uh, the, the New Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty uh, that was originally ratified in 2010, took effect in 2011, and was due to expire within weeks of Biden taking office. Uh, this was a treaty that uh, President Trump, of course, could have extended at any point during his presidency, uh, but chose not to uh, in a, a vain bid to try to extract more concessions from the Russians uh, which uh, not only failed, but also put the the main arms reduction treaty that's still left in jeopardy. Uh, and so, so Biden salvaged that and, and in do, so doing, uh, basically kept arms control alive uh, when it very easily could have collapsed. And so that's, that's certainly good for strategic stability. It's good for stability in U.S.-Russian relations. Uh, and, and so I, I applaud him for that. Uh, the, the thumbs down for me uh, is his decision not to contest or reverse Trump's recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara. Uh, this was a, a terrible decision that Trump made in the, the final months of his presidency. 
Uh, it was done for utterly cynical reasons uh, as a, a way of basically trading the, the rights of the Sahrawi people uh, in exchange for a, a modest normalization between Morocco and Israel. Uh, the, the U.S. gets nothing out of it except bad press for betraying the principle of self-determination. So uh, Biden's failure to overturn that uh, is a, a huge missed opportunity, uh, and, and I think he's going to come to regret it later on. Yeah, I, I agree with you there, Dan. And I do find that this, you know, despite all of the talk during the campaign about reversing terrible, evil Trump policies, the administration has very, been very slow on a number of them, and, and that's a big one. Uh, there's also the, the issue of the International Criminal Court and the sanctions on uh, the principles there. That has not yet been reversed. A lot of the sanctions uh, that we know that are crippling uh, regular people, whether it be in Iran or Russia and other places, have not been touched, if anything, you know, the Biden administration has put more sanctions on these countries. And you mentioned the START Treaty, and I agree with you on that on that thumbs up. But I feel like these other actions, like um, putting more sanctions on Russia, for example, going out there and talking about Putin as a killer, having no soul, you know, basically threatening them over Ukraine, that sort of, um, you know, neutralizes any of the the, the power uh, or the strength in or the commitment in getting back into the START Treaty. I, I can't help but think that that's not really a good diplomatic move uh, when you take you know, when, when you engage from the outset and you say, okay, we're going to get back into a treaty, and then all of your actions are on the other side uh, of the scale against uh, any diplomacy or, 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 or any opening to, to get to that place because you're too busy threatening basically war with that country, uh, whether it be with Ukraine or over Navalny or, or what have you. Yeah, definitely. And I think the, the real uh, worry here is because Biden's approach to Russia has generally been confrontational, except for this treaty extension, right. uh, there's not going to be much uh, of a possibility of continuing arms control negotiations going forward. Uh, so a new, new start has been saved, but it's only been saved for another five years. And then after that, uh, what do we have lined up? Right now, we have absolutely nothing. And so that's uh, that's my concern, that they're they're basically sacrificing uh, the possibility of future arms control deals uh, for these uh, short-term punitive measures. Exactly. For my thumbs up, I uh, also have Biden's decision to um, pull out of Afghanistan, uh, even though it's not on the May date that Trump had agreed, it's still happening. So I'm very pleased to see that. For a thumbs down, I'm very disappointed about uh, all of the sanctions that the Biden administration has um, both administered or continued to um, the Trump administration policy on, in particular with Venezuela um, and with Iran. I think Iran, it's really at the point now where it's probably endangering any real hope of going back into the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, the New York Times reporting on it, I thought it was had a very interesting sort of uh, section where they talked about how the Biden administration sees the um, this 
this opening right now as a step to something bigger, another deal after this deal. But that's not what the deal is. And we are the ones who pulled out of the deal. And the Biden administration functionally is exactly the their, their way that they have been um, negotiating towards Iran in particular, keeping the banking sanctions in place is exactly the same as the Trump administration and keeping the terrorist designations on and everything else. There's no difference. So I really don't understand how they think they're going to get a different result if they can, and especially the idea that they're going to use the platform of having pulled out of the deal to get a better deal with Iran. That's exactly the Pompeo strategy. We saw that it didn't work for all the years that they did it. So why would it work now? What are they thinking? I do not understand that. And it's, it's shocking to me that the Biden administration, which advertised that they wanted to get back into the Iran deal, they wanted to restore these things. They supposedly want a rules-based international order, whatever that actually means. Um, what is it that they hope to achieve by not by keeping these sanctions in place? No, I, I agree entirely. It's it's been very frustrating to see uh, not only the, the slow pace at which the Biden administration has operated on uh, diplomacy with Iran, uh, but also there these these weird hangups about what you know what Blinken likes to call the longer and stronger agreement that's supposed to follow this one. And it's I mean it's a terrible phrase too. I mean it's just yes. the most awful phrase. Where who who came up with that? But the, the and the substance of it is is even worse because it contains all of these uh, maximalist demands on Iran's other security interests uh, that Iran's never going to budge on, or at least not without being offered huge incentives that nobody's prepared to offer. So w- whenever somebody talks about getting a better deal from Iran, I'm, I want to ask them, what are you prepared to give them to right. get that deal? And there's there's never an answer to that because they don't think that they're in a negotiation. They think that they're there simply to deliver ultimatums and, and extract concessions. Uh, and, and so, of course, Iran's not going to respond favorably to that. Uh, and, and in the meantime, we've lost months and months uh, with this dawdling that uh, could have been spent more productively in actually getting uh, the U.S. back into the JCPOA. Uh, they, they've they've wasted a lot of time, and I, I'm afraid they they still don't understand what's required to to get the deal back on track. Um, it's yeah, that's definitely been another uh, big disappointment for uh, in my eyes too. It's very puzzling because when Pompeo was running the State Department, it never appeared that he had that much buy-in from the State Department on the Iran deal, um, on the pullout from the Iran deal. It never looked like the Trump administration had. Um, officials within the State Department that actually agreed with this stuff. But here we are, months into the Biden administration, continuing on the same track as if there's no other way to do this or if there's no other proposals out there, no other ideas. And there's plenty of other alternatives. And this one is literally the exact extension of Pompeo, even though Pompeo has been complaining on Twitter, it's really not any different. It's just slightly uh, different messaging, like you said, not very bad, be- not very much better, but yeah. I mean, I, I also wanted to throw in because I, you know, I trying to discipline myself and having one thumbs up and one thumbs down. But as we were talking, I was thinking, you know, what about China? I, I feel like this confrontational approach that the administration has taken towards China from the very beginning is exactly the opposite of the way they were talking during the campaign. I mean, as you remember, they blamed Trump for racist policies on China. 
that were deliberately confrontational, that were getting us not only in a trade war, but in a cold war approach. And now they're doing the same exact things. Now, their language may be more intellectually driven, uh, maybe not as bombastic as, as Trump would use. Nobody's, nobody is Trump in terms of like the kind of language that he used to describe his relationships or his approach to other countries. But when you think about it, every single hearing that we've had on the Hill uh, since January about uh, upcoming threat, threats and challenges, foreign policy posture for the upcoming you know, 2021, um, and beyond have all been about the threat of China and the competition that we face, whether it be with technology, whether it be with uh, military, what's going on with Taiwan, uh, everything, what, everything is being blamed on China and also being used as a justification for increasing our military budgets and getting into a, uh, a position of you know military primacy in that region of the world and we just had a story go up recently on responsible statecraft which talked about you know all of the the so-called threats that we face as a reasoning or as a justification uh, for for building up our pentagon budgets their intelligence budgets the r&d budgets and it's getting a little it's getting a little crazy, but I expected more from this particular administration only because they had been talking a different game during the campaign. Well, it's funny because it, Sorry, I, I mean, even Trump started out with saying how she was his best friend and everything. So even Trump's messaging on China was a little all over the place. But I think to some extent, the threat inflation towards China is a bipartisan endeavor. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see so many congressional committees that are taken up with it, because they both love to, I mean, especially now after coronavirus, everybody's favorite game is to blame China for everything. But what's also interesting is nobody's actually shown that China is investing in or is doing some kind of big investment into military uh, tech, anything. Like we already have 10 times the amount of military spending as China does. So how is having like 100 times what they do at going to change anything or make it better or do anything? I mean, if anything, maybe we should invest in some sort of disease prevention or some, something along those lines, which I do believe Biden also promised to do, but we're not really seeing similar uh, reflections, somewhat a little bit in the budget, but it's nothing compared to what the military budget has been bloated to. Right. Sorry, and, go ahead. and you see, you see in the, the rhetoric coming from U.S. officials and military officers uh, that they're, they're playing up military modernization in China and the, the increase of China's nuclear arsenal, and, and they're, they're blowing it way out of proportion. They're, they're making claims about China building uh, quadrupling their nuclear arsenal in the next decade. Uh, and they don't even have the fissile material to make all of those weapons if they wanted to do that. Uh, there, there was a report in the Financial Times talking about how uh, the head of Indo-Pacific Command uh, was misreading an important uh, statement from the Chinese government to interpret uh, Chinese military modernization as being a sort of a, on a breakneck pace to prepare for an invasion of Taiwan in six years, which 
it was it was a complete misreading of what the document was saying, uh, because it was convenient for them to make the threat seem much greater than it is. And so, uh, yeah, we, the, we have this hawkish anti-China consensus that's that's really uh, hostile to any sort of rational policymaking. Yeah, uh, and and that that's that's how we wound up in trouble uh, in the Middle East uh, twenty years ago. Uh, we we everyone bought into what everyone supposedly knows about the foreign threats, uh, and no, and the people that question them uh, get ignored. And it's right. funny because we have concrete data about what the Chinese are investing in with the Silk and Road initiative. So we know that they are putting money into ports and roads and different infrastructure and all over the world. But it's not as if we have a plan to, even though we keep talking about competing with them, we don't have a plan to compete with them doing that. We do, we do try to block them, though. Like, we'll say, we'll try to tell third-party countries that they can't have a port built by China there. But we don't say, oh, well, we'll build a port. So there's, like, other types of ways. My point is there's other ways that we could create jobs for Americans, right, but maybe building ports or building roads, like what China is doing through the Silicon Road initiative besides just constantly going to we have to build more ships we have to buy more weapons we have to have more nuclear uh we have to have missile defense we have to do that it's always it's always war related. it's always militarized the response yeah, is militarized a thousand other things we could invest in if we really want to compete with them as if and i'm not sure that they're even in our league in a competition i would hope not but if if that was truly our aim there's right. a lot of areas Right. Well, we, you know, we didn't get to talk about Yemen, but we will be able to talk about Yemen in our next segment with our guest, Kate Kaiser. So let's leave it at there, uh, at that. And I guess we can check in on, on the next 100 days and see if any of these, of these issues have been sorted out. guest today is Kate Kaiser. Uh, she is the policy director at Win Without War. She has nearly a decade of experience working on human rights, democratization, and U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. She previously served as the director of policy and advocacy at the Yemen Peace Project and as U.S. advocacy officer for Americans for Democracy and Human Rights in Bahrain. She has been one of the leading activists in the effort to end U.S. involvement in the war on Yemen and to secure lasting peace for the people of Yemen. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure. Uh, it's great to have you on. Uh, uh, as you know, the, the Biden administration started off saying many of the right things about ending the war in Yemen and our part in it, uh, but their follow-through and execution have been sorely lacking. What still needs to be done to end U.S. support for the Saudi coalition, and how can Congress and the public pressure the administration to bring about an end to the killing blockade that they still have in place? It's a great question. And I think first and foremost, the easiest thing that the administration can do is be transparent about what exactly the U.S. has ended in terms of material support um, for coalition operations in Yemen, um, as well as what is their what are their diplomatic goals? What does that look like in terms of pressure on Saudi Arabia? Are, is there accountability um, being instituted in U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia? I think that is the real question in my mind and on a lot of activists' mind, um, especially when you then see um, you know, folks like World Food Program CEO David Beasley call for a, an end of the blockade um, by the Saudi-led coalition 
on humanitarian grounds, right? And then quibbles from the U.S. side about um, whether blockade is even the right word to use, right? And I under, I've heard that for a long time working on Yemen about, you know, it, it given how, how the blockade has worked and waned and waxed over the years in terms of degree of intensity, um, you know, there's always been this question of whether it meets a blockade under international law. And I think, you know, well, that is well-intentioned and wanting to be accurate, especially after four years of just like straight lies, right? Or even longer in the case of Yemen. Um, at the same time, debating words is not necessarily helpful, right? It sends mixed messages about what the U.S. government wants. And I do feel, you know, that um, the diplomats that the president has put in charge of leading the Yemen file are meaningfully engaging in diplomacy. But the way that they are reporting that out and messaging that out to the U.S. public is very, very lacking. And I think it's a direct result of, you know, over 20 years of basically the siloing of U.S. foreign policy and this idea that the public doesn't care. And I think that that's really been um, uh digested by the bureaucracy in some way to the fact that they don't think about like what is the domestic message that we're sending with this policy decision and so I think we saw that play out with um, the U.S. Special Envoy Tim Lenderking's hearing in front of Congress um, a couple weeks ago now where he did not answer questions about U.S. military support and defer to the DOD. And so you started to see this kind of adversarial conversation between senators, members of Congress, and the special envoy when that's not necessarily a helpful signal to send for um, pushing for peace, right, and trying to de-escalate the conflict. And I, you know, it's it's even more challenging when, you know, a good decision like the U.S.-Afghanistan um, withdrawal decision is then coupled the same day with news that they're going to continue um, almost all weapon sales to Saudi Arabia and all weapon sales Trump tried to push through to the UAE. And so it, it basically, you know, it continues this kind of incoherent, inconsistent U.S. policy towards Yemen that has always been the root of the problem in terms of the U.S. approach to Yemen, where, you know, you know, Afra Nasser of um, HRW said this really well in a recent article where the policy is not about Yemen. There is no Yemen policy. The policy is about the Gulf. The policy is about Iran. The policy is about U.S. military interests, right? And I think that's where if you actually followed that line of thinking and thought about what was best for Yemen, the writing has been on the wall in terms of what the end of this conflict looks like, what the potential future of Yemen looks like. And it's only gotten more complicated because the US has not been willing to meaningfully engage in those conversation and understand how continuing to arm one side of the conflict, even in the name of quote unquote defense, still sends the signal that war can be pursued, um, not only by the coalition, but it also sends that signal to the Houthis. So long as we're arming their adversary to the tilt, they are going to think that they're going to be further incentivized to pursue conflict, which is what they're good at instead of negotiation and governance. Absolutely. And I was going to come up uh, to the, the arms sales next. Uh, so thanks for bringing that up. Uh, the, the $23 billion arms sales to the UAE was, uh, as you're saying, a, a terrible signal to send. Uh, it sends uh, the message essentially that war criminals that are responsible for bombing civilians in Yemen, not just in Yemen, but also in Libya, uh, and uh, running torture prisons in South Yemen, uh, that they will be let off the hook, uh, and that they will essentially be granted not just 
weapons, but the most advanced weapons that we have. Uh, so uh, Biden is really continuing his predecessor's policies of, of just giving war criminals carte blanche in that re in respect of arms sales, right? Absolutely. And I think this is where, um, you know, in Washington, there's always these debates about leverage in foreign policy and how the U.S. should best use its leverage with a certain country. And those conversations have once again cropped up um, within the administration based on media reports and my conversations. And I think it's the wrong question to be asking in this moment. Um, the reality is, is that we have basic, we have military, we have allowed military relationships to trump any sort of strategic valuing of the activities that we are supporting. Um, I think that there has been, you know, for a long time, so long as a country is labeled as a vital U.S. military partner, they're essentially given carte blanche for whatever they want to do. We've seen this not only with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, of course, but also the Philippines, Israel, Egypt. Um, it's across the board that if if you are especially if you are a quote-unquote counterterrorism partner, we cannot question the relationship. And what's interesting is it it actively not only puts the U.S. on the back foot in the bilateral relationship with the country, it also overestimates the value of authoritarian regimes to a counterterrorism strategy. Because if, you know, the more I read about it, um, just in terms of the security assistance infrastructure and security cooperation infrastructure that the U.S. has around the world, it's very, very clear that the U.S. military is a key bottom liner of authoritarian regimes around the world. Um, and that's not necessarily unique to the U.S., right? But I think it's it's a dissonance in our grand strategy and how we actually think about our foreign policy and what we're doing and, and you know, I, I very much appreciate Secretary of State Blinken's, um, you know, comments about centering human rights in our foreign policy. But so long as we fail to elevate centering human rights as a, a key natural interest in and of itself versus something that just supports national interests, we're going to, I think, continue down these worrisome militarized paths. Absolutely. And, and one of the, the, in the same week that Secretary Blinken said that, uh, he gave a waiver to Azerbaijan despite their war crimes in Karabakh and the, the execution of Armenian prisoners. So uh, uh, go ahead, Kelly. Oh, thanks. Thanks a lot, Dan. Hi, Kate. I'd like to talk a little bit about Iran in relation to this difficult issue of having strategic coherency. We see this tension of wanting to end the war, but also to confront what the Washington establishment and official Washington says is Iran's support for the Houthis and our pledge to defend Saudi Arabia from Iran-backed attacks. Can you talk a little bit about how the mission to end the war in Yemen comes into direct conflict with our confrontation with the Iran threat, conflated and misguided as it may be? It's a really great question. I, you know, and I think to caveat everything I'm going to say is that, you know, I think part of the problem, right, that we were talking about before is, and this is part of that challenge, is that when we get into how, you know, it's Iran versus Saudi Arabia and Yemen, the conversation is no longer about Yemen. Yemen is just kind of a playing field for these proxy conflicts. But it's also important to note that the Houthis are not, have not been an Iranian proxy. The longer the war goes on, they're more likely to become one. Um, but the reality is, is that Iran, 
you know, has never had a vital existential interest in controlling Yemen. Um, that is much more um, in Saudi Arabia's interest, given where they are on their border, as well as their access to the Gulf um, and their future pipeline plans. Whereas Iran is being opportunistic in Yemen, and it always has been, where it saw an opportunity to basically ally with this, a uh a group that would then become a thorn in Saudi Arabia's side. And I think it's really important that to take a step back and, you know, remember that the Houthis, um, you know, only gained any type of popular support after the former regime president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, assassinated one of its leaders, and then they were able to mobilize people against the government on based on pre-existing economic and political grievances that, that were really based on marginalization over the history of Yemen. And Yemen has, there's a lot of complicated history here, but I think, you know, in DC, we are very eager to see these as like geopolitical fights. And while that can be true, and I think the longer these conflicts continue, that does become more true. Um, it's, it's unhelpful in terms of thinking about how we end the conflict, because I think that, you know, Iran, while it does have influence with the Houthis, it doesn't necessarily have command and control over the Houthis. And I think the 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 bottom line is that in terms of negotiations over the future of Yemen, the Houthis in Iran may not have aligned interests. Um, and so I think that could also break down. You know, I think their relationship is very opportunistic. Um, and it's also an opportunity, as you were alluding to, Kelly, um, for the U.S. to bring Iran into the negotiation process to give them that opportunity, right, to show good faith as part of a larger confidence building approach that I think is really necessary for U.S. rapprochement with Iran. Um, you know, and then the final thing that I'll say is that Iran, like other uh, governments um, in the region, are looking, you know, the way that their proxies often gain support is they, they provide services to local populations where a government is not providing services. This was certainly the case in Lebanon originally. Um, and so what, what these, what these groups are basically exploiting, what Iran is exploiting is basically governance and economic failure, right? And, and as well as a reaction to U.S. imperialism in the region, right? That is only exacerbating those pre-existing grievances. And so, you know, when when we when we have conversations about the future of the region and bringing Iran in, I I always like to take a step back and ask, like, why does the U.S. have a right to be dictating what the future of the region looks like? The U.S. should be playing a facilitator role to find some type of bargain that brings some form of detente that can de-escalate the current conflicts to help civilians, because that, first and foremost, is what is needed. But after that, it's not in the U.S. interest to just unconditionally back an authoritarian monarchy that is unstable and also part of driving the climate crisis, right? And we are not necessarily dependent on this region like we were economically back in the 70s and 80s. And so I think this is this is another part of where Biden's approach to the region is both working in terms of, you know, the U.S. push finally pushing forward with talks with Iran, calling for the end of the war. We've seen this, you know, Saudi and Iran secret talks and reproachment, which is great and much needed. But at the same time, we haven't yet, I think, fully uh, 
reset what the U.S. policy toward the region is, what our goals are, and what how we view relationships in the region. Because I think if if we just tinker with some things, but still base alliances solely off of military partnerships, right, and military um, shared objectives, then we're, again, we're missing this opportunity to fundamentally reset how we actually approach the region. And I think that'll allow the military to continue dominating those relationships versus diplomats dominating those relationships. Great. Um, this is Barbara. I'm so glad to have you on the show, Kate. I had the pleasure of interviewing you uh, back when I was writing a story about Trump's decision to uh, launch an airstrike to um, kill Iranian General Soleimani. So listeners of our podcast are obviously familiar with the authorization of use of military force, which is otherwise known as the AUMF, which was passed back on September 14th, 2001. Uh, so signed into law by President George W. Bush. Um, and that hasn't been, you know, reauthorized since then. So um, it's been interpreted and reinterpreted as a pretext to justify the presence of the U.S. military in what is now 150 countries around the world, including Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. So I was wondering if you could tell us how Congress could best reassert its constitutional role here? Uh, so Congress can best, this, that's a great question. Um, it should reassert its role by repealing the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs. Um, <laughs> first and foremost, that's what needs to happen. Um, and then there needs to be a public debate about whether the military is actually the right tool to be using to address the security challenge posed by violent groups that perpetrate terrorism. I think that you know, the administration has signaled it supports um, repealing the AUMS, but it also wants a replacement AUMF. And I think that's a that that's basically putting the cart before the horse because you you know, after 20 years, um, a DOD assessment of the effectiveness of UT. U.S. counterterrorism policy is probably not going to be the most objective assessment <laughs> of how, what's been going on, and so I, it's that's where the Constitution comes in, and Congress being in the driver's seat in determining whether, where, and why the U.S. should be going to war is so essential. And if if we um, preload conversations about um, the AUMF with like what a replacement looks like, we're already we're, we're skipping a step and we're not actually having the public debate that the constitution demands and the tr level of transparency that's required for the people's representatives to actually understand whether more endless war could support, uh, actually supports the American public. There's been a lot of talk about vaccine diplomacy lately and pressure has been mounting on the US um, to share its coronavirus vaccine patents and particularly in light of the suffering currently seen in countries like Brazil and India. Um, India has reported infections having surged past 20 million and um, Brazil's death stopping 400,000, I think now. Um, I was, I'm not sure if you're familiar, uh, the Washington Post reported Senator Chris Coons had said 
Um, this is a quote. All of this is a wake-up call for us that we need to have another Sputnik-like moment of reinvestment in American innovation and competitiveness. A central part of being successful in this competition is continuing with our constitutionally created protected property right of a patent. Now, you're talking before about how we could move forward from not having just military as our only method of diplomacy. And one of the interesting moments here has been Pope Francis has been lobbying the Biden administration to, to share the patent information because the United States happens to have most of the coronavirus vaccine uh, patents just for sort of this year, I think, potentially. And that's one, one of the ways I think that potentially could be, I don't know, I was curious to get your thoughts on, on this sort of moment as the world is facing the, the coronavirus pandemic, how, how maybe this could be potentially faced and, and Chris Kuhn's comments there. You know, I think that those comments are, you know, uh, seem to be bought and paid for by Big Pharma. I think the idea of prioritizing corporate profits over life <laughs> in this moment is just so outrageous. Outrageous and short sighted. Like, I don't really have, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what to say, right? I think that, you know, um, Obviously, what's happening in India and Brazil is super complex, and we know that a, a, a TRIPS waiver, as they're calling it, to allow, you know, um, to end IP protections for the vaccines, um, it wouldn't necessarily solve immediately the crisis in India, right? Like, there's much more to it in terms of raw material needs and things like that, in terms of the global supply chain, what the U.S. can also be doing more on. Um, but, you know, I think that... Uh, this is a question of equity. And I think that the president, you know, especially in light of the racial injustice protests um, last summer, he committed to forging a path forward for both U.S. domestic and foreign policy, theoretically, that would be based in equity. And I think, you know, a lot of his climate plans articulate this, right, and focus on equity and investing and reinvesting in black and brown communities who are the most impacted by climate. But I think that analysis can't just be limited to one issue. It has to be applied across the board if the U.S. wants to be seen as credible and actually standing for something. And that's where, you know, um, I think I've always been concerned about you know, where this president and his advisors might be on things like this, where it specifically touches on corporate accountability, um, taking back public ownership of corporations, specifically with regard to the vaccines, right, where um, it's, it's, you know, U.S. taxpayers who are actually putting most of the bill for the development of these vaccines. And like, great, I'm grateful, right? I'm sitting here and I'm vaccinated and not exactly sure what to do with myself now that I am. But, um the reality is, is that I'm in an incredibly privileged position and that is not the, tr that is not the life or reality for the global South right now. And that they are only going to be continue to be harder hit by this pandemic. And not only that, we're actively risking the, the rise of more lethal variants of this disease that our vaccines will not deal with. And so 
if nothing else, we are actively like undermining our own safety. Right? Oh, and Russia is parachuting in with their Sputnik vaccine too. I, I don't even well, know how to jump in there with such an apt um, metaphor of all things, but yeah. Totally. Well, and I just think that's where like this whole conversation about competition really misses the mark. In a in a in the 21st century, the truly existential threats that we face, whether that's pandemics or um, mass inequality or the climate crisis, right? All of those things are transnational challenges that require transnational solutions. And so when we just get fixated on competition, what seems to be happening, and I, politically it doesn't make any sense, is Democrats seem to be buying into hawkish rhetoric on China to justify policies for domestic investment that are wildly popular on their own. They don't need a scapegoat of China. If anything, it's it's actively harming the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities in this country by fomenting more racism and xenophobia, by, by trying to use a foreign enemy, right, to align, um, to end polarization in this country. And I think that fundamentally, that's just a misconception of our political environment right now, where the the quote unquote other side that you're in our political system that we're supposed to be collaborating with actively supported, um, you know, an attempted coup on the government in January, right? And but we're being told that it has to kind of be business as normal, and we need to seek bipartisanship. And I just don't think that's really a reflection of reality. And then you layer this competition conversation on top of that, and there's just no real there's not a real benefit here to lean into competition. If anything, again, Democrats, maybe inadvertently, are tying their own hands and cutting off paths to cooperation and collaboration, specifically on things like technology that are so essential to actually, um, you know, speeding ahead with a just transition to a clean green economy that can actually keep the rise in temperature under 1.5 degrees Celsius, right? Like there's all of these things that, collaboration, cooperation with countries like Russia and China, you know, and that's to say nothing on nuclear um, disarmament cooperation, of course, but, you know, I just think that, again, it's allowing this military first tendency in policymaker thinking to just take hold of the reason to taunt that we are doing domestic initiatives, whereas, you know, I think they have much stronger arguments say we're doing these things because we want to lead the world by example in terms of what government should be providing for their people. And then we can have that debate about what government should be providing for their, our people, right? But I, you know, there's no reason that we have to create another foreign enemy similar and overreact similar to how we did a 9-11. You know, I think that's what's most concerning is that there, there's this whole infrastructure that now could be counterterrorism infrastructure that could be applied um, to a to a conflict with China or proxy conflicts with China and a new Cold War and you know all of that requires yet more increases in defense spending that will yet again shrink the budgets for domestic initiatives that are really actually needed to build resiliency in the United States. Right, and thanks very much, Kate. We appreciate your time, and uh, I know you need to get going, so uh, we will wrap it up there. Uh, but thank you so much, Kate Kaiser, Policy Director at Win Without War. Uh, and uh, we will all keep trying to uh, crash the war party uh, here uh, and around uh, DC. Yeah. So uh, thanks again, Kate. Awesome. Thanks so much, all. Thank 
thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. 